Book One, Chapter Seventeen of *The Branding Iron* by Catherine Newland Burt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Chapter Seventeen, Concerning Marriage. And it was springtime. These prisoners of frost were beautifully sensitive. They too, with the lake and the aspens and the earth. The seeds and the beasts had suffered the season of interment. In such fashion nature makes possible the fresh undertakings of last summer's reckless prodigals. She drives them into her mock tomb and freezes their hearts. It is a little rest of death, so that they wake like turbulent bacchants, drunk with sleep and with forgetfulness. Love, Spring says, is an eternal fact, welcome its new manifestations. Remating bluebirds built their nests near Joan's window. They were not troubled by sad recollections of last year's nests, nor the young birds that flew away. It was another life, a resurrection. If they remembered at all, they remembered only the impulses of pleasure. They had somewhere before learned how to love, how to build. The past summers had given practice to their singing little throats and to their rapid wings. No ghosts forbade happiness and no god, man-voiced, saying, because he knew the ugly human aftermaths, hard sayings of, Be ye perfect. What counsel was theirs for Joan, and what had her human mentor taught her? He had taught her, in one form or another, the beauty of passion and its eternal sinlessness, for that was his sincere belief. By music he had taught her, by musical speech, by the preaching of heathen sage and the wit of modern arguers. He had given her all the moral schooling she had ever had, and its golden rule was, Be ye beautiful and generous. Joan was both beautiful and made forgiving, free-hearted, as she might herself have said, Friday's child, as the old rhyme has it, and to cry out to her with love, saying, I want you, Joan, was just, sooner or later, to see her turn and bend her head and hold out her arms. Prosper had the reward of patience. His wild leopardess was tamed to his hand, and her sweetness made him tender and very merciful. Their gray little house stood open all day while they explored the mountains and plunged into the lake, choosing the hot hour of noon. Joan made herself mistress of the house, and did her woman's work at last of tidying and beautifying and decking corners with gorgeous branches of blossoms, while Prosper worked at his desk. He was happy. The reality of Joan's presence had laid his ghost just as the reality of his had laid hers. His work went on magically and added the glow of successful creation to the glow of satisfied desire. And his sin of deceit troubled him very little, for he had worked out that problem and had decided that Pierre, dead or alive, was unworthy of this mate. But sometimes, in her sleep, Joan would start and moan, feeling the touch of the white-hot iron on her shoulder. 
her hatred of Pierre's cruelty, her resolution to be done with him forever, must have vividly renewed itself in those dreams, for she would cling to Prosper like a frightened child, and wake, trembling, happy to find herself safe in his arms. So they lived their spring. Wen Ho, the silent and inscrutable, went out of the valley for provisions, and during his absence Joan queened it in the kitchen. She was learning to laugh, to see the absurd, delightful twists of daily living, to mock Prosper's oddities as he mocked hers. She was learning to be a comrade, and she was learning better speech and more exquisite ways. It was inevitable that she should learn. Prosper, in these days, spent his whole soul upon her, fed her with music and delight, and he trained her to sing her sagas so that every day her voice gained in power and flexible sweetness. She would sing, since he told her to, her voice beating its wings against the walls of the house or ringing down the canyon in untrammeled flight. Prosper was lost in wonder of her, in a passionate admiration for his own handiwork. He was making, here in this God-forsaken solitude, a thing of marvel. What he was making surely justified the means. Joan's laughable simplicity and directness were the same. They were part of her essence. No civilizing could confuse or disturb them. But she changed. Her brain grew. It absorbed material. It attempted adventures. Nowadays Joan sometimes argued, and this filled Prosper with delight, so quaint and logical she was, and so skillful. They were reading out under the firs by the green lip of the lake, when Wen Ho led his pack-horse up the trail. He had been gone a month, for Prosper had sent him out of the valley to a distant town for his supplies. He didn't want the little frontier place to prick up its ears. Wen Ho had ridden by a secret trail back over the range. He had not passed even the ranger station on his way. He called out, and in the midst of a sentence Joan was reading, Prosper started up. Joan looked at him, smiling. "'You're as easily turned away from learning as a boy,' she began, and faltered when she saw his face. It was turned eagerly toward the climbing horses, toward the pack, and it was sharp and keen with detached interest, an excitement that had nothing, nothing in the world to do with her. It was the great bundle of Prosper's mail that first brought home to Joan the awareness of an outside world. She knew that Prosper was a traveled and widely experienced man, but she had not fancied him held to this world by human attachments. Concerning the tall child, she had not put a question, and she still believed her to have been Prosper's wife. But when, leaving her place under the tree, she came into the house and found Prosper feverishly slitting open envelope after envelope, with a pile of papers and magazines ankle-high beside him on the floor, she stood aghast. "'What a lot of people must have been writing to you, Prosper!' 
He did not hear her. He was greedy of eye and fingertips, searching, written, sheet after sheet. He was flushed along the cheekbones and a little pale about the lips. Joan stood there, her hands hanging, her head bent, staring up and out at him from under her brows. She looked, in this attitude, rather dangerous. Prosper sped through his mail, made an odd gesture of desperation, sat still a moment, staring, his brilliant green-gray eyes gone dull and blank. Then he gave himself a shuddery shake, pulled a small parcel from under the papers, and held it out to Joan. He smiled. "'Something for you, leopardess,' he said. He had told her his first impression of her. She took the box haughtily and walked with it over to her chair. But he came and kissed her. "'Jealous of my mail? You foolish child! What a girl thing you are! It doesn't matter, does it, how we train you or leave you untrained. You're all alike, you women, under your skins.' Open your box, and thank me prettily, and leave matters you don't understand alone. That's the way to talk, isn't it?" She flushed and smiled rather doubtfully, but, at sight of his gift, she forgot everything else for a moment. It was a collar of topaz and emerald set in heavy silver. She was awestruck by its beauty, and went, after he had fastened it for her, to stand a long while before the glass looking at it. She wore her yellow dress cut into a V at the neck, and the jewels rested beautifully at the base of her long, round throat, faintly brown like her face up to the brow. The yellow and the green brought out all the value of her grave, scarlet lips, the soft, even tints of her skin the dark lights and shadows of her hair and eyes. "'It's beautiful,' she said. "'It's wonderful. I love it.' All the time, very grave and still, she took it off, put it on its box, and laid it on the mantel. Then she went out of doors. Prosper hurried to the window and saw her walk out to the garden they had made and begin her work. He was puzzled by her manner, but presently shrugged the problem of her mood away and went back to his mail. That night he finished his novel and got it ready for the publisher. Again Wen Ho, calm and uncomplaining, was sent out over the hill, and again the idol was renewed, and Joan wore the collar and was almost as happy as before. Only one night she startled Prosper. "'I asked Pierre,' she said slowly after a silence in her low-pitched voice. "'When he was taking me away home, I asked, "'Where are you going?' "'And he said to me, "'Don't you savvy the answer to that question, Joan?' "'And, Prosper, I didn't savvy.' So he told me, and he looked at me sort of hard and stern. "'We're a-going to be married, Joan.' Prosper and Joan were sitting before the fire, Joan on the bearskin at his feet, he lounging back, 
long-legged, smoke-veiled, in one of the lacquered chairs. She had been fingering her collar, and she kept on finger it as she spoke, and staring straight into the flames, but, at the last, quoting Pierre's words and tone, her voice and face quivered, and she looked at him with eyes of mysterious pain, in them a sort of uncomprehended anguish. "'Why was that, Prosper?' she asked. "'I mean, why did he say it that way? And what—what does it stand for, marrying or not?' Prosper jerked a little in his chair, then said he blasphemously, "'Marriage is the sin against the Holy Ghost. Don't be the conventional woman, Joan. Isn't this beautiful, this life of ours?' "'Yes.' but her eyes of uncomprehended pain were still upon him. So he put his hand over them and drew her head against his knee. "'Yes, but that other life was—was was before Pierre changed. It was beautiful.' "'Of course. Love is always beautiful. Not even marriage can always spoil it, though it very often does. "'Well, Joan,' he went on flippantly, though the tickle of her lashes against his palm somehow disturbed his flippancy. "'I'll go into the subject with you one of these days, when the weather isn't so beautiful. It's really a matter of law, property rights, and so forth, a practice variously conducted in various lands. It's man's most studied insult to woman.' It's recommended as the lesser of two evils by a man who despised woman as only an Oriental can despise her, St. Paul by name. It's a thing civilized women cry for till they get it, and then quite bitterly learn to understand it. It's a horrible invention which needn't touch your beautiful clean soul, dear. Come out and look at the moon. Listen. They stood side by side at the door. Some silly bird thinks that is the dawn. Look at me, Joan. She lifted obedient eyes. There, that's better. Don't get that other look. I can't bear it. I love you. A moment later they went out into the sweet silver silence down to the silver lake. Four months later, the name of Prosper Gale began to be on everyone's lips, and before everyone's eyes. The world, his world, began to clamor for him. Even Wen Ho grumbled at this going out on tremendous journeys after the mail for which Prosper grew more and more greedy and impatient. His novel, The Canyon, had been accepted, was enormously advertised, had made an extraordinary success. All this he explained to Joan, who tried to rejoice, because she saw that it was an exquisite delight to prosper. He was by way of thinking now that his exile, his Wyoming adventure, was to thank for his success, but when a woman, even such a woman as Joan, begins to feel that she has been a useful emotional experience, there begins pain. 
For Joan, pain began and daily it increased. It was suffering for her to watch Prosper reading his letters, forwarded to him from the western town where his friends and his secretary believed him to be recovering from some nervous illness, to watch him smoking and thinking of himself, his fame, his talents, his future, to watch him scribbling notes, planning another work, to hear his excited talk, now so impersonal, so unrelated to her, to see how his eagerness over her education slackened, faltered, died, to notice that he no longer watched the changeful humors of her beauty, nor cared if she wore bronze or blue or yellow, and, worst of all, to find him staring at her sometimes with a worried, impatient look, which scuttled out of sight like some ugly, many-legged creature when it met her own eyes. Painful, of course, yet such an old story. Joan, who had never heard of such experience, did not foresee the inevitable end, and, in so much, she was spared. The extra pain of forfeiting her dignity and self-respect did not touch her, for she made none of those most pitiful, unavailing efforts to hold him, to cling, did not even pretend indifference. She only drew gradually into herself, shrinking from her pain and from him as the cause of it. She only lost her glow of love-happiness. Her face seemed dwindled, seemed to contract, and that secret look of wild animal returned to her gray eyes. She quietly gave up the old regulations of their life. She did not remind him of the study hours, the music hours, the hours of wild outdoor play. She read under the firs, alone. She studied faithfully alone. She climbed and swam alone, or with his absent-minded, fitful company. She worked in the garden alone. At night, when he was asleep, she lay with her hand pressed against her heart, staring at the darkness, listening to the night, waiting. Curiously enough, his inevitable returns of passion and interest, the always decreasing flood mark, each time a line lower, did not deceive her, did not distract her. She never expressed her trouble, even to herself. She did not give it any words. She took her pain without wincing, without complaint, and when he seemed to need her in any little way, in any big way, she gave because she could not help it, because she had promised him largesse, because it was her nature to give. Besides, although she was instinctively waiting, she did not foresee the end. It was in late October when somewhere in the pile of Prosper's mail there lay a small gray envelope. Joan drew his attention to it, calling it a queer little letter, and he took it up slowly, as though his deft and nervous fingers had gone numb. Before he opened it, he looked at Joan, and, in one sense, it was the last time he ever did look at her, for at that moment his stark spirit looked straight into hers, 
acknowledged its guilt, and bade her a mute and remorseful farewell. He read, and Joan watched. His face grew pale and bright, as though some electric current had been turned into his veins. His eyes, looking up from the writing, but not returning to her, had the look given by some drug which is meant to stupefy, but which, taken in an overdose, intoxicates. He turned and made for the door, holding the little gray folded paper in his hand. On the threshold, he half-faced her without lifting his eyes. "'I have had extraordinary news, Joan. I shall have to go off alone and think things out. I don't know when I shall get back.' He went out and shut the door gently. Joan stood listening. She heard him go along the passage and through the second door. She heard his feet on the mountain trail. Afterwards she went out and stood between the two sentinel firs that had marked the entrance to that snow tunnel long since disappeared. Now it was a late October day, bright as a bared sword. The flowers of the Indian paintbrush burned like red candle flames everywhere under the firs. The fireweed blazed. The aspen leaves were laid like little golden tiles against the metallic blue of the sky. The high peak pointed up dizzily and down, down dizzily into the clear emptiness of the lake. This great peak stood there in the glittering stillness of the day. A grouse boomed, but Joan was not startled by the sudden rush of its wings. She felt the sharp weight of that silent mountain in her heart. She might have been buried under it. So she felt it all day while she worked, a desperate, bright day, hideous in her memory, and at night she lay waiting. After hours longer than any other hours, the door of her bedroom opened, and an oblong of moonlight, as white as paper, fell across the matted floor. Prosper stepped in noiselessly and walked over to her bed. He stood a moment, and she heard him swallow. "'You're awake, Joan?' Her eyes were staring up at him, but she lay still. "'Listen, Joan.' He spoke in short sentences, waiting between each for some comment of hers, which did not come. "'I shall have to go away tomorrow. I shall have to go away for some time. I don't want you to be unhappy. I want you to stay here for a while, if you will, for as long as you want to stay. I am leaving you plenty of money.' I will write and explain it all very clearly to you. I know that you will understand. Listen. Here he knelt and took her hands, which he found lying cold and stiff under the cover, pressed against her heart. I have made you happy here in this little house, haven't I, Joan? She would not answer even this, except by the merest flicker of her eyelids. You have trusted me. Now trust me a little longer. My life is very complicated. 
this beautiful year with you, the year you have given to me, is just a temporary respite from, from all sorts of things. I've taught you a great deal, Joan. I've healed the wound that brute made on your shoulder and in your heart. I've taught you to be beautiful. I've filled your mind with beauty. You are a wonderful woman. You'll live to be grateful to me. Some day you'll tell me so. Her quiet, curved lips moved. Are you telling me good-bye, Prosper? It was impossible to lie to her. He bent his head. Yes, Joan. Then tell it quick and go out and leave me here tonight. It was impossible to touch her. She might have been wrapped in white fire. He found that though she had not stirred a finger, his hand had shrunk away from hers. He got to his feet, all the cleverness which all day long he had been weaving like a silk net to catch, to bewilder, to draw away her brain from the anguish of full comprehension, was shriveled. He stood and stared helplessly at her, dumb as a youth, and, obedient, he went out and shut the door, taking the white patch of moonlight with him. So Joan, having waited behind an obstinately locked door for his departure, came out at noon and found herself in the small gay house alone. She sat in one of the lacquered chairs and saw after a long while that the Chinaman was looking at her. Wen Ho, it seemed, had been given instructions. He was to stay and take care of the house and the lady for as long as she wanted it or him. Afterwards he was to lock up the house and go. He handed her a large and bulky envelope which Joan took and let lie in her lap. "'You can go tomorrow, Wen Ho,' she said. "'You no wait for Mr. Gale come back? He say he come back.' "'No, I'm not going to wait. I guess—' Here Joan twisted her mouth into a smile. "'I'm not one of the waiting kind. I'm a-going back to my own ranch now. It won't seem so awful lonesome, perhaps, as I was thinking last spring that it would.' She touched the envelope without looking at it. "'Is this money, Wenho?' "'I think so, lady.' She held it unopened out to him. I will give it to you, then. I have no need of it. She stood up. I am going out now to climb up this mountain back of the house so I can seize just where I am. I'll come down tonight for dinner, and tomorrow, after breakfast, I'll be going away. You understand? Lady, you mean give me all this money? babbled the Chinaman. Yes said Joan gravely. I have no need of it. She went past him with her swinging step. She was coming down the mountainside that evening, very tired, but with the curious, peaceful stillness of heart that comes with an entire acceptance of fate, when she heard the sound of horses' hooves in the hollow of the canyon. 
her heart began to beat to suffocation. She ran to where, standing near a big fir tree, she could look straight down on the trail leading up to Prosper's cabin. Presently the horseman came in sight. The one that rode first was tall and broad and fair. She could see under his hat brim his straight nose and firmly modeled chin. "'The sin-buster!' said Joan. Then, looking at the other, who rode behind him, she caught at the tree with crooked hands and began to sink slowly to her knees. He was tall and slight. He rode with inimitable grace. As she stared, he took off his sombrero, rested his hand on the saddle-horn, and looked haggardly, eagerly up the trail toward the house. His face was whiter, thinner, worn by protracted mental pain, but it was the beautiful, living face of Pierre. Joan shrank back into the shadows of the pines, crouched for a few minutes like a mortally wounded beast, then ran up the mountainside as though the fire that had once touched her shoulder had eaten its way at last into her heart. End of Book One, Chapter Seventeen End of Book One Recording by Roger Moline